Welcome to All Rings Considered. This is episode 12 of our Lord of the Rings read-through. We are covering book one, chapter 12, and it is a momentous day because this is the last chapter of book one. So if we survive this recording, which you know, I, I don't take anything for granted, but if we do that, <laughs> uh, we will have actually uh, covered an entire book of the six books, books of the Lord of the Rings. So I think that's worth celebrating. Congratulations. You you can tell you can tell I I like to find things that like I celebrated chapter 10 because that's just <laughs> 10 episodes I celebrate two episodes later because now we finished a book. So I'm just going to have to find reasons to celebrate basically each uh chapter we do. But let me tell you Pep. Let me tell you one thing I'm not celebrating. What's that? This chapter. I don't oh like boy. this chapter. Well, that's harsh. Okay. I don't dislike it. I just don't think it's anything particularly special and i know that's a bit of a hot take among uh readers of this book so i'm interested to, to get into this because i know you disagree with me on this you're this is yeah a big fan yeah absolutely big fan of chapter 12 so i actually can't get through chapter 12 without crying this is the only chapter of any book that i cry at <laughs> every single time you big baby uh no but uh <laughs> We actually need to to name we need to name the chapter and give a summary of it. So this is again book one, chapter twelve, Flight to the Ford. And the summary of it, according to Cliffsnotes.com, is um <clears throat> excuse me. The summary is uh with Frodo wounded, the black riders allow themselves to be driven off. Strider treats the injury with Athelos, a plant considered a weed by most, but having healing properties. He knows that Frodo must be taken to Rivendell as quickly as possible because the blade which injured him carries an evil enchantment that only Elrond can dispel, but they still have two weeks to travel. Even with Frodo riding the pony, he becomes weaker each day. Finally, they return to the road where they meet Glorfindel, an elf lord sent to search for them. As they approach the fort of Bruinen at the boundary of Rivendell, five riders appear close behind them while four others try to cut off Frodo's escape. Frodo passes the ford, barely ahead of the nine. They call out for his surrender, and he feels the compulsion of their wills against his own. Nevertheless, he defies them, and they urge their horses into the water. A magical flood rises against this invasion of Elrond's territory, and Frodo watches as it carries the riders away, even as he falls into unconsciousness. So, yeah. Pip, talk to me. Make your case. Why should I care about this chapter when, to me, it's just kind of not that interesting it's just sort of getting us from weathertop to rivendell yeah so uh i think in the broadest stroke this chapter for me condenses the feeling of this whole book you know book one it is being hunted i just i feel the being hunted uh being pursued by the black riders um i think it just condenses all of that into uh a chapter and then at the very end has this, you know, very powerful confrontation with Frodo and uh, and the Black Riders. Yeah, I, Before, I'll, I'll give you that. The hunted feeling is is definitely here. I'm with you there. I've got some. I got get some more things to say about. Uh, I mean, about the chapter before we get to that final confrontation. But I feel like really a lot of this chapter is just this really condensed feeling, and then you get this this big payoff at the end. So I understand actually the like kind of the criticism 
you know, you're talking about and, you know, others may have for, you know, Tolkien being Tolkien, <laughs> like, uh, you know, in a way sort of mm-hmm. just uh, like, oh, like it's them like going yeah. up and down. Um, but I don't know. I just I like it as a uh, as a setup for this payoff at the end. Just for context for our listeners, sorry, I had mentioned uh, to you, Pip, before that this is one of those chapters where I think Tolkien's some of his bad habits come out where it's just a little too much uh, traveling without enough character to it. But it is there. I I don't want to sound too harsh because I think it comes out, the bad habits come out a little bit, but it's not lacking in in quality here. I think it does have that feeling of being hunted pretty well. What I actually really like about the chapter is the atmosphere of the landscape. We've talked about this so far in book one. We've talked about the uh, going from this Celtic and Roman Britain landscape, and really what would have therefore must have been an Anglo-Saxon landscape, a medieval Anglo-Saxon landscape, and that book one's filled with that. So you have this sort of moors and hills and downs and ruins all around, and it's it feels very much like the edge of the world, and you're in the wilderness, nowhere near anything rel- relevant to civilization. What towns there are seem pretty small. Something like Bree seems like a very small, out-of-the-way place. Mm-hmm. This chapter does a good job with, with that feeling, I think. And I mean, with them traveling through the, the hills that are that, that uh, have ruins throughout. Or one of my favorite little bits where they... Uh, it's, it's described that they go into a long valley. And Tolkien says it's narrow but deeply cloven dark and silent trees with old and twisted roots hung over cliffs and piled up behind into mounting slopes of pine wood and you're just really feeling that edge of the world middle of nowhere feeling we've talked about that in previous chapters mm-hmm. but it, you know it continues here it, it's a it's a fitting place to sort of end book one given that that's been book one's atmosphere this chapter does do a good job of bringing that to a bit of a close yeah ab- absolutely um and I, I've got some more praise for just the the prose in this chapter. Um, one thing I think this chapter does very well, which is something I think Tolkien is the master of. I think Tolkien is the master of ending a paragraph. So often okay. he has these, these, and I've got some examples. So I'll just read a couple ends of paragraphs. Strider ordered them to pick up and lay him near the fire, and then he disappeared. That was now a good while ago. End paragraph. Or this is Frodo uh, thinking to himself, he bitterly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will, for he now perceived that in putting on the ring he obeyed not his own desire but the commanding wish of his enemies. He wondered if he could remain maimed for life and how they would manage to continue the journey. He felt too weak to stand. Just like, ah, in the paragraph. Um, and then just one last one. Uh, Strider seemed to be getting anxious. They were nearly ten days out from Weathertop and their stock provisions was beginning to run low it went on raining into paragraph and i feel like uh and actually I, I could cheat a little bit and draw from um uh the silmarillion uh there's some really great ones there um but but yeah so uh i feel like this is something he's the best at and i think it actually like really helps with this particular chapter where you know it's the sensation of um of being pursued not knowing exactly what's going to happen next um, but just really getting to the end of a thought and this uncertainty or this, it's just 
a closing thought and then having to move on to the next the next piece of what's happening. Um, I think he closes those things very well. Yeah, I agree. I think he always reminded me in his closure paragraphs of I, I'm just going to warn you actually right now. I'm going to go full medieval literature nerd on oh, you this, bring it this up. episode. I just have various things to say on this. Uh, if you ever go and read Sir Gawain the Green Knight Middle mm-hmm. English poem from the 14th century, he closes those stanzas really well. And Tolkien, Tolkien's closure paragraphs remind me. I don't have any quotes on hand because I didn't know you were going to bring that up, so I don't have that prepared. I don't have my Gawain ready to go. At least I don't. Actually, I mean, I see it actually right now on my bookshelf. I could, <laughs> in theory, look at that. Uh, but you know what? I'll spare. That'll be for the special edition of the podcast when we go back and add the things that we. Yeah. Well, CGI. I, I mean, I got to make that like a special effect insert. Yeah. Right. Like a CGI audio insert. <laughs> Charlie reading. It was our true vision all along. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've, I've got something just to as a side uh, to say about uh, how did you pronounce it? Uh, Athelus or the plant that Aragorn is using? Oh uh, yeah, I said I said. Athelus. Athelus. Sure, I don't know I, how to say. I'm not the best necessarily on Tolkien pronunciation. I don't really look those things up. So, Athelus, I think is that's what I would say. But I, I haven't looked that up. Admittedly, I'm um, not sure what else it would be. Symbolically, what it's doing is, it, well, I mean, literally, what it's doing is it's helping to heal Frodo. But you have this description of it where writer says that it doesn't grow here, um, or in the Bear Hills, so they're on Weathertop. He find finds it. Uh, you know, way, way south of the road. It's a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle Earth, and it only now grows in, you know, near, you know, uh, places of old. Um, it's not known in the North. So I think it actually kind of represents Strider or Aragorn here. So it's this thing that men brought to Middle Earth. Um, it is not growing in, you know, Weathertop or not, it's not existing in places where, uh, cities are. Currently, so it's not. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, Athelas is not at Weathertop. Aragorn's not in Gondor, and it's the healer, right? So Aragorn is, you know, it's actually something we'll talk about later. But he is, you know, King is the healer, right? He's the master healer later on in the book, and but currently, but then he says uh, uh, it has great virtues, but over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small. Um, it actually does help, but it's also Strider doubts himself right now. And so he's like, ah, oh, like he's doubting this healing plant that you could realistic, like I think, like reasonably say, it kind of like has a parallels with him. Uh, and so it's him doubting himself. I just thought, oh, that's like, that's kind of neat. Oh, and then you know, the last thing I'll say about this plant is that they're at the Wikipedia page or the uh, Lord of the Rings wiki page. There's a really funny description of it, uh, which is uh, Aragorn uses Athelas to. Uh, Pain of Frodo's wounds uh, after he stabbed by a mortal blade at Weathertop. After the Battle of Pelennor Fields, Aragorn uses Athlaeus in the House of Healing to revive Faramir, Lady Eowyn, and the Hobbit Merry, who are all under the shadow of the Black Breath. And the last line is, the men of Gondor use an infusion of Athlaeus for headaches. <laughs> I find it really funny. Uh, you know, the Black Breath, headaches, it's all the same thing. Let's move on we actually need to start thinking, though, about getting to the end here. So let me say one one more medieval literature nerd thing, and then, and then let's let's talk about the confrontation at the end. So my one last thing I want to note here is that 
I, I feel like there's a good bit of Beowulf parallels in this chapter. Mm-hmm. We've talked on previous episodes about potential Beowulf parallels. Tolkien studied Beowulf a lot and wrote about it. He was one of those famous critics of Beowulf in his time. And so it doesn't surprise me to see some influence here. Uh, one is that the sword that Frodo had used, or the dagger really, that Frodo had used to stab the Witch King in the previous chapter... Uh, it said in this chapter that it has it's like melted away, mm-hmm. which also had happened to Beowulf's sword. He had, well, Beowulf had found this ancient sword that he used to kill Grendel's mother, and that also melted away afterward, just due to the horrible evilness of coming into contact with Grendel's mother's blood, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, I think you have a similar parallel here. I do think Tolkien's deliberately drawing on that, and. Second is that some of these descriptions of the scenery, they remind me of some scenery descriptions from Beowulf just straight up. So we have a line that I read earlier about the long valley that's narrow, deeply cloven, dark and silent, trees with old and twisted roots hung over cliffs and piled up behind into mounting slopes of pine wood. Just sort of aesthetically that reminds me of this uh, these lines from Beowulf that are somewhat well-known, I guess, among the people who study the poem really in depth because they have a lot of uh, interesting parallels with other stories and other literature from different countries. Mm. Uh, but Beowulf has this scene where they uh, are, let's see, they're crossing over a headline here. They have crossed over steep stone cliffs, the constricted climb, a narrow solitary path, a course unknown, the towering headlands, And suddenly he saw mountain trees stunted and leaning over gray stone, a joyless wood. And that translation is not mine, actually. That was Roy Liu's translation of the poem, but similar kind of vibe there. The Hobbit has a lot more direct Beowulf parallels, but I do think we've seen a good number here. I guess super quickly I'll mention the um, one note from when they find the trolls, the stone trolls. Yeah, it's just it's kind of interesting to I mean one it's a reminder that light conquers darkness. There is uh, they're walking Bilbo's path, but the difference is that they are being pursued, whether they them pursuing something. Yeah, it's really interesting that you know that you know there's no treasure there either. So I think it was Pippin or maybe it could be Mary who asks Fred, oh like I wonder if there's any treasure here, and just no, you know it's just it's not uh, it's not that type of story. But yeah, so the climax. It's my favorite last two pages. Well, it's my favorite pages in The Lord of the Rings. There's this first there's this build-up, right? So you have the whole build-up of this book. And then it's this chapter that's like really a condensed um, you know, concentrated version of just uh, being pursued, the feeling of desperateness. And I love just the imagery of them going through this echoey sort of cave and like oh they are their footsteps are causing you know to the echoes to like feel like they are you know hear footsteps behind them and then they stop and Glorfindel hears more footsteps so they realize that they wasn't you know theirs after all and then it's just you know there there it starts it's danger and one moment uh, Glorfindel turned and listened then he sprang forward with a loud cry Fly, he called. Fly, he is upon us. And you just get this horse. I mean, I love this horse so much. It's a great character. Well, Rindle's horse, my favorite character, Lord of the Rings. So it leaps forward, 
and they are they all start running um except Bruno just can't get into it he's still right being controlled by riders and the, the relationship with the ring and there's this building of anxiety even more where it's like ah danger is here and uh Glorfindel you know yells ride forward ride um it's calling to Frodo and Frodo still can't get into it and you get all this imagery of you know the dark shadows coming forward and finally Glorfindel just is, is yelling right on right on and starts to talk to the horse and <laughs> talks to the horse instead says well the horse you go and so you get this great scene of Frodo um you know, running across this flat mile of land, you know, and he's just holding on to this horse. Um, he's not, he's really not doing anything. He's just holding on with his eyes closed. And, uh, you know, it's this great, uh, you know, actually for another episode, we'll talk about whether this horse actually has wings or not. But, <laughs> uh, but it moves forward as if it has wings. Yeah. And it gets across the ford. And this is my favorite part. This part I can't read without crying. And Frodo has confrontation. And so, uh, first, you know, he, he actually, like, draws his sword. And that's just, you know, what an amazing, you know, uh, image here of a tiny hobbit. Uh, all nine of the Black Riders are here, which is really significant because throughout the, the book, Gandalf is afraid of all nine. He warns against all nine. Strider warns against all nine saying, oh, like, you know, we're kind of screwed, but at least all nine aren't here. And so they're here. And then a tiny hobbit, on the other side of a river with no chance at all, raises up his sword. And actually first he's, you know, he's crying, go back. Um, and he says, go back to Mordor. And then again, he says, go back, he whispered. And so his commands aren't, he's not even challenging them. He's just asking them, you know, stop, <laughs> please stop. Right. So he's not really addressing the evil. He's just wishing that it wasn't there. And then they call back to him. They ask, you know, they call for the ring. And this is my favorite line. You know, the whole book, uh, I mean, of Lord of the Rings, is uh, by Elbreth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo with the last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither the ring nor me. And that to mm -hmm. me just, it's just, it's the entire message of the book, right? All there. It's this doom of the, you know, impossible evil is facing against him. And he wish it wasn't there. He's like, go back. He wishes, it, you know, they just weren't there. And then it's his final choice. It's his last effort. He lifts up his sword. And he says they should not have the ring, and but more importantly, and finally, nor him. Which is, right. you know, I mean, I see that as like what we're all doing, right? Like, just not allow evil to have you. And wow, I just, whew, it gets me. I just, yeah, I can't handle it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I love your explanation of it. I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't quite hit me as much cold -hearted. as you. <laughs> but I am cold-hearted cynical i don't know um that's okay i mean i i love that uh i love that it's a powerful moment for a lot of folks including you and yeah i mean yeah there are a bunch of yeah. pieces in the book resonate with different people but um this one just happens to mm -hmm. mine um yeah i mean i wish i had a good explanation for why it doesn't click with me you you pointed out something i did not notice so that's cool maybe i need to reevaluate my take i did not notice that this was the first time the nine were all together at once like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I technically noticed in that they they say it. But it hadn't hit me the significance of how it had constantly been hyped up. That, you know, Aragorn always saying, oh, at least all nine of them aren't here. 
uh, it, mm-hmm. we had always seen that sort of build it, that hype and build up. So I, I don't think it really hit me how just how important that was. I just thought it was a technical detail and not something that was really had been built up like that. So I think that was my own oversight. One actually cool thing uh, I wanted to point out, kind of tying back to the beginning of the uh, episode when we were talking about ending paragraphs, uh, there's this line where Frodo is being upset with himself for putting on the ring, and he says he clearly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will, for he was obeying you know, the desire and command of his enemies, uh, and he felt too weak to stand. And at this very end, it's kind of a callback to the beginning of the chapter where the Black Riders are calling for the ring because they start to say, the ring, the ring, they cried with deadly voices. So it's kind of a parallel to, you know, the ending of last chapter. Here he actually turns around and that he's, he does stand, you know, um, or sit up on his uh, saddle. But, oh, and the very last thing, um, this is not as epic, but just at the very end, you have the Black Horses were filled with madness, and leaping forward in terror, they bore their riders into the rushing flood. Um, and that's when the uh, the black riders are actually being crushed by the, the river. Right. Um, but I just want to point out, so uh, Gorfindel's horse, my favorite character in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. is this uh, amazing beast that is, you know, it carries Frodo. It's It's doing all the work, really, for Frodo. And by that I mean, you know, it's, you know, doing something for him. We always talk about the theme in the book of evil undoing itself. And uh, the Black Riders' horses, when, you know, they're at this, you know, confrontation, they get really uh, frightened and, and they jump their riders into the danger and they kill them. <laughs> I think that's just, you know, yeah, it's a little piece of, of evil undoing evil, right? Always, yeah. Um, that's the thing I have to say. Finally. Finally. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, I guess we actually should wrap this up though. We this will this will be a long episode, but sure. let's wrap it up. I'll give my favorite line real quick. Mine's just a nice bit of scenery description when they are traveling. There's a bit where Tolkien says, "Quote: The wind began to blow steadily out of the west and pour the water of the distant seas on the dark heads of the hills in fine drenching rain." So yeah, just like a line, just nice, nice little yeah. uh, description. I like the I like the image of water coming from distant seas. So as far away as they are from the ocean or the sea, as Tolkien pretty much always calls it, mm. it still has some kind of power and effect on them. I like that image a good bit. I like that too. Yeah. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, book one complete. So join us next time as we go into book two. Book two, chapter one. Does he he restarts the chapter numbering right? He does. He does. Yeah. So book two, chapter one, many meetings. See you then.